This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. If anybody else would like to introduce me, now's your opportunity. Thank you so much for the warm introductions. Bershus, the Mar Asra, Rabbi Reich. And again, I would like to assure you, Ashrechem, that you have such a Mar Asra. And my humble blessing to you is that the Mar Asra and his family should have continued success here in this wonderful Kehillah. And should continue to elevate the Kehillah in good health for the Rav's family, for all of your families, together with Rabbi Paikis, who it's been a pleasure to have been, to interact with Rabbi Paikis with all the arrangements coming here. And uh, may this community grow in Torah and Yerushamayim in all aspects of Avodah Hashem for many happy and healthy years. Abiyasko El Tzadak. You know, the Gemara wonders <laughs> there are these hot springs in Tiberia. So when you go to Israel, isn't it a shame that there are no hot springs in Yerushalayim? Wouldn't it be convenient to basically kill two birds with one stone? Why do you have to go to the hot springs in Tiberia and then be Oile Regal in Yushalayim? And the Gemara basically says, because if the hot springs were in Yushalayim, then the Oile Regalim, those who go up to the Harabayas for the three festivals, they may have an ulterior motive. They're not really going to do the mitzvah, they're going to enjoy themselves. And it's the same thing with the Tshuva Drasha. There's never air conditioning at a tshuva drasha. <laughs> because on a hot day, people may say, you know what, I'll go check out the drasha. I'll get some AC. So the Almighty has mysterious ways that if you're coming to a tshuva drasha, you're going to do it for the sake of heaven. This time of the year, perhaps more than any other time, is a time of memories. We're going to speak about Zichroinos on Rosh Hashanah. We're going to Davin Yizkar on Yom Kippur. We're going to say Zichroinu L'chaim, remember. And for me personally, this Yomim Naram season is a time of very vivid memories, a time when the floodgates of memory have opened wide. While 5782 was a year of great chesed of Hashem and great blessing, nevertheless for our family in particular, it was a difficult year. First, we completed the year of mourning for our revered grandfather, my father's father, Zechot Tzak Levracha, Harav Mordechai Leib Gladstein, who was a rabbi in Pittsburgh for more than 70 years. He passed away in his 106th year. He was a Holocaust survivor. He survived all the dark places, Auschwitz, Dachau, Radom. He, was a, he knew the Gera Rebbe before World War II. He was a Ben Bayis by Rabbi Nachem Zemba. He saw Dr. Mengele. He saw Eichmann. He survived all of that. He even survived 70 years of Rabbanus in America. We can say about him, Tzadik Yisait Olam. He was literally like a, f- a foundation pillar of the world. And then 127 days later, on Chavzayanav, we completed the year of mourning for my mother's father, Shimon Yehoshua Hirschvang, who came from a very different background. He grew up in the Bronx during the Great Depression, in poverty. 
At the time in the Bronx, there were 600,000 Jews and only 600 boys attended yeshiva. The assimilation rate in the Bronx from the 30s was astronomical. He had overcome many challenges to remain in Erle Chayid. He was one of the founders of Rabbi Hillel David Shul in Flatbush. At a young age, he lost hearing in one of his ears, and because of that, he did not have balance. But even in his old age, even in his high 80s, he would trudge every Rosh Chodesh from shul to shul, collecting money for Aniyei Eretz Yisrael. Anyone who has ever heard me speak knows how often I spoke about my grandfathers, how dear they were to me. And I tell you, when my grandfathers were alive, it gave me a sense of security. They were our foundation. They were our bedrock. You know, when you have grandparents, you feel like a kid. And with the loss of grandparents, your security is shattered. You feel a step closer to the end. The haunting words of the Yushalmi became much more meaningful. The Yushalmi tells us in Mayid Katan. The Yushalmi compares a family to a pile of stones. And the stones are perched and situated one on top of the other. And they seem pretty stable, but when one stone is removed, the Yushalmi tells us, everything becomes uneasy, everything becomes unsteady. And that's how we feel. And thinking about all the memories, and what the loss of my grandfathers mean to me, they were from the most profound influences in my life. The following Gemara and Tainas came to mind. The Gemara Tainus tells us the story of Choyne Hamagel. Choyne Hamagel was walking on the road, and he sees a guy planting a carob tree, buxer. Now why somebody would want to eat buxer is one of the great mysteries of life. And Choyne says to the guy, you know, you're planting a buxer tree. How long does it take for that tree to produce fruits? And the guy said, well, 70 years. And Choyne says, you think you're going to be around in 70 years? Why are you planting a buxer tree? And the man says, When I was born in this world, I found someone planted a carob tree for me. Someone planted that carob tree for me. I'm going to do the same for future generations. This is the feeling that I have from the loss of my grandparents. Whatever humble, meager success that we have in our family, in spirituality, it's only because we saw the greatness of earlier generations. It's because we saw giants of spirit. We saw their amuna. We saw how they davened. You know, one Pesach... My grandfather, Rabbi Mordechai Glatzin, came into shul with me. And into the shul came somebody who was a friend of his from Auschwitz from 70 years before. His name was Meir Lachman. And he turns to me, he says, Your grandfather, he knows how to daven. He said, No kidding, he knows how to daven. He said, No, you don't know what, what I mean when I say he knows how to daven. What I mean is when he was in the death camps, he would sit and daven the Shemayna Esrei and the Nazi would come and clob him over the head. 
and he would fall unconscious. And then a day later, he would pick himself up and continue right where he left off. That's what I mean, he knows how to daven. You know, my grandfather's grandfather, my grandfather knew his grandfather, was the best friend of the Malbim in 1860. So I could look at my grandfather and it took me back 160 years. That's what my grandparents meant to me. And the question is, look what our ancestors have done for us. Are we prepared to do the same for our future descendants? You know, one of my all-time favorite stories, I say it all the time, I mentioned it to the boys this afternoon. It's a Rabbi Beryl-Wine classic. And he actually reprinted it in one of his newest books. It's called Heads, Heads and Tails. Highly recommend it. Has a picture of a pretty peacock on the cover. And Rabbi Wine writes that in 1946, he was 11 years old, he was a Ben Yachid, and his father says, Beryl, we're headed now to the airport, to Chicago Midway Airport. Well, what's there, Dad? What's there? A great rabbi is coming to town. Who's coming to town? Rabbi Isaac Halevi Herzog. He was the chief rabbi of Palestine after World War II. And all the rabbonim and all the distinguished balabatim and all the yeshiva students were coming out to greet Rabbi Herzog. And Rabbi Herzog was a very aristocratic personality. He wore a shiny top hat. He held a cane. He would hold his Tanakh in his left arm. And everyone came to the airport and they accompanied Rav Herzog to the shul. And the shul was filled to capacity, Rabbanim, Balabatim, and all the yeshiva students of the Skokie yeshiva were there. And Rabbi Herzog gave a 45-minute in-depth pilpal, halachic analysis about a particular subject. And then when he was done, he said, now I want to have a few words with the young yeshiva students. By the way, Rabbi Herzog came from Dublin and he spoke with a, a slight Irish brogue. And he said, let me know. I, I want you to know. I just came back from a meeting with Pope Pius XII in the Vatican. And I had with me a list of 10,000 names of boys and girls who, because of the Holocaust, they were given over to monasteries, to churches, to priests, because the Jewish parents didn't think they would survive. And Rabbi Herzog presented this list to the Pope and he said, Give them back. They're our children. Right now you're kidnapping them. They belong to us. We have their names. We have their parents' name. Give us back our children! But to no avail. The Pope slammed the door on Rabbi Herzog's face. Rabbi Herzog then turns to the young boys and he broke down on the lectern crying bitterly. And Rabbi Wine said that as a young boy he was never so frightened in his life. Here, this great rabbi, he's weeping publicly of the fate, of the doomed fate of these 10,000 young boys and girls. And then the rabbi defiantly raises his head. He looked like a lion. And he cried out, there's nothing I could do for these 10,000 children. But what are you men going to do for the future of the Jewish people? What are you going to do for Klal Yisrael? And then we all f filed by Rabbi Herzog 
and we shook his hand and he looked each and every one of us in the eye and he said, did you hear what I said? What are you going to do for the future of the Jewish people? And Rabbi Wine writes that his entire life, Rabbi Herzog's cry rings in his ears. Whenever he's tired, whenever he's worn, whenever he's down, he hears Rabbi Herzog, what will you do for the future of the Jewish people? And that challenges him, and that shapes many of the decisions in his life. And that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. What will we do for the future of the Jewish people? And for many of us, the most important contribution we will make to Klal Yisrael is the influence that we're going to have on our children and our grandchildren. So let's get a little perspective. Let's focus. What exactly is the influence of a parent and a grandparent? I want to share with you a few short comments of the Sfarna. The Sfarna writes about Moshe Rabbeinu. We all know the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest man who ever lived. Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest prophet who ever lived. Like Kambi Yisrael Kamoshe. He took us out of Mitzrayim. He went up to Har Sinai. He got us the man. He led us through the Midbar. He's the most humble man who ever lived. Says Rabbeinu Yoyna, just like he was the most humble man who ever lived, he likewise excelled in every imaginable character trait. So let's nail it down. Let's zero in. What was the single contributing factor to the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu? What made Moshe? Important question to know. Furthermore, now Moshe Rabbeinu, his brother and sister, not too shabby. Pretty good lineup. Moshe, Aaron, Miriam, pretty good for one family. Had the parents do it. What happened? Listen to a Svarno. Says the Sferno, a great chidush. Levi herech yamim al kulam. Levi outlived all of his brothers. Levi lived 137 years. Yosef only lived 110 years. Because Levi lived so long, he had grandchildren that he taught. And his son Kahas also had grandchildren. And Amram taught Moshe. So Moshe was created, says the Sferno, through the influence of a father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. In other words, Moshe's greatness is because he was a beneficiary of the influence of a Zayda, of a great-grandfather, of earlier generations. And our Rosh Hashiva, Rav Henech Libowitz, brought out from this Svarno, that more than any other element of Moshe, not his Anivus, not his Hasmada, not his Nevuah. It was all narrowed down to the fact that he was able to gain from earlier generations. In other words, we don't believe it takes a village to raise a child. It doesn't take a village. It takes a father and a mother and a grandfather and a grandmother and even further back. So you say, that's great. Well, that has nothing to do with me. Yeah, if I had a great-grandfather Levi and a grandfather Kahas and a father Amram, yeah, then that could produce a Moshe. But is this relevant in 2022? Does this phenomenon still exist? Let me share with you another Svarno. The Svarno says, in Parshas Mishpatim on the Pasuk, 
As misbar yamecha amale, the blessing of a full life, says the Sfarno. What is the blessing of a full life? The Sfarno says you will live long, you'll have arichas yamim, and what is the benefit of long life? It says the Sfarno, when a person has a long life, he'll be able to see his grandchildren and teach his grandchildren. And what will happen will be, Kahas Amram Maisha. Says the Sfarno, this is a blessing which is available in every generation. And this is something that the young generation often forgets about. Forget about Grandpa. What could Grandpa do for me? Grandpa could be your greatest influence. And Grandpa says, okay, now it's time to retire. I'm going to go south. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. The Svarno tells us, then the ideology of the Torah, you thought once you raised your kids, your job is over. Your job is just beginning. You're just getting started. You're just getting going. Now could be the most productive and important years of your life in terms of shaping the future and the history of the Jewish people. I want to zero in and focus for a little bit. What exactly is the power of the influence of a parent? Obviously, there are many factors. It seems like an elementary question. Of course, the parent is the great influence on the child. How does a parent influence a child? You know, I've noticed a phenomenon over the last couple of years speaking. And to me, in a way, it's a very disturbing phenomenon, but it also has a lot of uh, rationale to it. I could speak about a topic for an hour. The topic is tshuva. The topic is tefillah. The topic is Torah. And I will happen to mention some random tidbit in the middle of the shear, and you could bet your bottom dollar that when the shear is over, most of the comments about the shear will be about the random tidbit that I accidentally threw out and slipped in by mistake, without any intention. That's what catches everybody's attention. I'll give you an example. Last year I spoke at a seminary during Elo, a seminary in Muncie. And it was a few days after I sent my own daughter off to Israel to seminary for the year. Now it happens to be, I'm an emotional guy. And the Friday night before I sent my daughter off to seminary, it was so painful to me to think that next Friday night my daughter is going to be in Israel and we're going to be here, we're going to be missing her. I could not get through the Kiddush. I couldn't make Kiddush. I was weeping during Kiddush. That's me. Okay. And why did I mention this? I figured I'm talking to a seminary and I... And my daughter went to seminary. I want to establish some connection with the girls over there before I start. So I threw in the story. I wasn't even planning on saying the story. And after the drusha was over, the only comments I got about my drusha, really, you cried that your daughter was going to seminary? I wish somebody cried when I went to seminary. And by the (laughs) way, that's a very telling comment in many ways. But to me, I'm wondering, I don't understand, I just spoke for an hour. Was my speech totally incomprehensible that the only thing you got from it 
was that I cried when my daughter went to seminary. There's not one thing you learned from what I said other than a random story. And the answer is, that's exactly the point. Because the prepared talk and the rehearsed speech and the organized thought is just words. They're just dibor. It's just something you're saying. But something that comes out that slipped in, Agavorcha, Mesiach Lefitumai, those are not your words. That's you! And people are not influenced by what you say. They're influenced by who you are. So you could talk for an hour, and it could be passionate, and it could be genuine, and it could be sincere, but it's the Mesiach Lefitumai that makes the greatest impact. By the way, we're learning now Dr. Phil told me I shouldn't mention him. But I haven't listened to him yet, so I'm going to mention that we learn Yavamis. <laughs> we learn Yavamis every week, a couple of times. We're learning now the penultimate blot in the Sech Yavamis, the second to last blot, that talks about a fascinating halachic subject. And the subject is Mesiach Lefitumai. Mesiach Lefitumai is halachically. We can only accept the testimony of two kosher witnesses who are Jewish. We cannot accept in a Jewish court of law the testimony of an oived koychav mazolos of a Gentile. However, the Gemara says, there are situations where you could have one Gentile. If they happen to say, Mesiach lefitumai. By the way, did you hear what happened to Beryl? Beryl passed away. He wasn't trying to testify in a court of law. He wasn't trying to effectuate anything. He was just chattering. You could take that information to the bank and a woman could remarry based on the Agav Orcha slippant, flippant comment that a Gentile makes. This is considered the highest level of credibility in the Jewish court of law. Now the Gemara and the Poiskim qualify this greatly. The Gemara says if two Jews are having a conversation, yeah, whatever happened to Beryl? And the Gentile says, oh, Beryl? Beryl left. He's not here anymore. We can't believe him because there was something that prompted that comment. And if the Gentile is an enemy of the husband, we can't accept it. And the Gemara and the Poiskim qualify this greatly. But if there are no qualifications, and in the perfect scenario, it is the unintentional, unrehearsed, unprepared comment that has the highest level of credibility in a Jewish court of law. And therefore the al Shaykh tells us, you want to influence your children? You want vishinantam levanecha? You want to teach your children? It has to be v'hoyu hadvarim ha'ela asher hanoichi mitzavcha hayoim alevavecha. If you mean it, if it's on your heart, if it's coming from your internal awareness, then vishinantam levanecha. But if, let's say, you just want to teach your kids, okay, Lashon Hara is very important. Uh, bring me out the book about Lashon Hara from the Chafetz Chaim. Let me read it at the table. I don't want to say don't bother, but just to read words. Words that come from your mouth, go to the other person's mouth, but don't go to the other person's heart. If it's Aleva Vecha, if you mean it, if it's Mesiach Lefitumai, not what you're saying, but who you are. 
that influences a child. It's the influence of a parent is years and years and years of mesiach lefitumai, the remarks that they hear about from a parent about the Torah, about Tzfilah, about Rabbanim, about HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That is the influence that a parent has on a child. And very often, it's the image, the imagery of a parent is the most powerful influence in the life of the child. We know Yosef HaTzadik. He's a young, handsome man. He goes down to Egypt. And every day, his master's wife is tempting him, is persuading him. And she's wearing him down. And the Gemara tells us it was a particular day, it was their day of the festival. And she told her husband she wasn't feeling well. And nobody was in the house. And Chazal gets so descriptive and graphic that they say Yosef was completely worn down. He was literally about to commit the act. She wore him down. And ultimately, what stopped him? Was it fear of God? Was it his love of Hashem? Chazal tell us, Basa de yuknoi shall aviv He saw the image of his father. That could be the most powerful and compelling insurance policy and influence on a child. The image of the parent. What is our children's image of us? Oh, dad, my dad, he's always parked in front of a big screen. My mom! Yeah, my mom. She's always on the phone. Is that the kind of image we want our children to have from us? Because it's the image of the father and mother that make the greatest impact on the child. We have to make Kiddush Friday night a powerful image in our children's mind. How do you say Shecheyanu when a Yom Tiv comes? How do you make Havdalah? What does our Birchas Hamazain look like? These images will be seared forever on the hearts and the minds of the child. Now the story goes in the times of the great guy in the Nachal Eshgal. There was a very wealthy family in the community. And the child had been kidnapped by a monastery. And the parents were not successful in getting the child to be released. The judge was completely unsympathetic. The judge kept on saying, who says it's your child? The monastery says the kid was always a Christian. And then there was a switch in the judge. And the parents got audience with the judge. And the judge says, all right, I understand what you're saying. I understand you had a child. He's missing. This child in the monastery is the same age. But they claim he's always been here. So this is the, this is the deal. We're going to give you five minutes with the child. You could talk to the child for five minutes. If you're successful in these five minutes in freeing the child, if the child wants to return with you, he's yours. If he doesn't want to go back, he'll remain in the monastery. So they come to their rabbi, the Nachal Eshkel, and he strengthens them, he encourages them, but they're very nervous, they're very anxious, because how in the world, after this kid has been indoctrinated, for years and years and years, will they convince him to leave? The Nachal Eshkel said, I'm going to come with you. So on that fateful day, they walk into the great hall, and there is the child. 
and the parents don't even know what to say. And into the room accompanying the parents is the great Nachal Eshgal, and he's wearing white. He's wearing his white kittel from Yom Kippur. And he's wearing his white yarmulke. And he begins to hum a tune. And the kid is looking at the rabbi like he's in a trance. And there are two minutes left and the rabbi says to the kid, do you want to come back with us and have this world and the world to come or do you want to stay here? And the kid jumps out of his trance back to his parents. He says, get me out of here. I want to go right back now to the shul that I heard that song. This is the kind of influence that the imagery that our children grow up with has on them. The shul they daven in, the scenes from the home is what stays with the children forever and ever. You know, the wicked King Menashe, he served every Avodah Zarah in Eretz Yisrael, and at the end of his life, he was put in a pot, and he was about to be cooked. And Chazal say he did tshuva. Why did he do tshuva? Because in his last moment, he remembered, my father taught me a pasuk in Chumash when I was young. That when you're in distress, you call out to God, and God will save you. Think about it. In the most challenging moment in the life of Menashe, what inspired him to do tshuva? It's the pasuk he remembered that his father taught him when he was a young boy. That's what inspired Menashe to do tshuva. The most powerful influence that will ever be upon our children are the scenes, are the images, are the moments that we spend with them. About eight years ago, I had the privilege to speak in a community down south in Memphis, Tennessee, right off the Mississippi River. You could go to the Bass Pro Shop. You could go up the tallest standing elevator, freestanding elevator in North America, and you could see a nice chunk of the Mississippi River. And one of the highlights of my trip, I met an elderly Yid, his name was Yeshua La Kutna. And now when I heard that name, I was shaken, because Yeshua La Kutna is the name of one of the pre-war Polish Torah giants who actually my great-great-grandfather was a student of, and this individual who was in his 90s, was named after him. And he told me one of the most moving stories I ever heard. He was born in New York in 1920. During the Depression, his father came from Warsaw, his mother came from Galicia, and his parents were so poor, they couldn't put food on the table. So what would he do? He would go buy ice cream, he would get dry ice, and he would go to the central bus station by Lincoln Terrace Park, and when the trucks would stop, he would sell the driver's ice cream. And at the end of the entire day, he would make a dollar. And that was like a week's salary. And he would bring it home to his parents to support the family. He said he was poor, but his rabbi and his students in Yeshiva Chaim Berlin were even more poor. And in 1930, the rabbeim were starving, literally starving to death. 
There were people who owned big businesses, they couldn't put food on the table, they sold buttons, shoelaces, apples, handkerchiefs. handkerchiefs. So back in the 30s, a quart of milk, five cents. A loaf of bread, two cents. A New York Times, one cent. That's exactly what it's worth. One day, they called me. Sorry, I know it's California, but what can I say? The yeshiva called me into the office. And the yeshiva said, look, your parents owe six dollars of tuition. If you don't bring six dollars in tomorrow, don't come back to school. And Yeshua Kutna said, you know, that was actually the fate of many, many of the children. They were told either you bring in the old tuition or you don't come back to yeshiva. And those boys who were not allowed back to the yeshiva and they went to public school, they were lost forever. They have no Jewish descendants today. But we came home. Dad, Mom, how are we going to pay the $6? We had no silver candlesticks. There was nothing in the house but junk. Dad owned one suit. It was a bad suit. It was an ugly suit, but it was the only suit where the jacket matched the pants. So Mom said, Dad, go take your suit to the pawn shop, and maybe he'll give you a few bucks. So dad went to the pawn shop. He said, sir, I need to send my kids to school. Six bucks, please. The pawn shop owner said, six bucks, this is worth about $3.23. He said, I I have to send my kids to school. The guy gave Yeshua Mikutna's father six dollars. And we went back to Yeshiva. This was one of the most moving experiences of my life. Now I and my brothers knew what Tyra meant to our family. Others were not as fortunate. Had we not brought in the six dollars, I would not have today dozens and dozens and dozens of Torah-observant great-grandchildren. My father was never able to buy his suit back. But you know what Hashem gave him in return? God gave him Five generations of Torah-observant Jews, God-fearing Jews, Erlech Yidin. Aaron HaKoyen wore eight garments. A regular Koyen wore four garments. My family also had Big Day Kahuna. We sold them for six dollars. It was the best six dollars we ever spent. The, the choices that we make the decisions that we make reverberate forever and ever and ever. The Gemara tells us in Masechta Rosh Hashanah that on the Yom Tif of Rosh Hashanah, Melech, Yoishev, God is sitting, Visifrei Chaim, Visifrei Mesim, Suchim Lefanav, and the Book of the Living and the Book of the Dead are open. Why is God judging the dead on Rosh Hashanah? would God judge the dead? What did the dead person do? He's six feet under what he went. Hey, move over. It's a little cramped over here. Why is God judging the dead? He was judged. When a person passes on, goes up to Shemayim, God judges them. Why would God judge the dead every Rosh Hashanah? And in fact, the Beis Yosef brings down that in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur we give tzedakah to bring kapara for the dead. What do they need kapara for? What they do? 
The Ramah writes in Simon Tafresh Chafalaf, we say Yizgar for the dead. Why do they need Kapara? Comes Rabbi Yeshua Heller. Rabbi Yeshua Heller lived from 1814 to 1880. He was a student of the Nachlas David, Rabbi David Teva, and he says a haunting explanation. Listen to this. He says, here you have a guy who passed away. He lived with fear of God. He was always early to Shachos. He always davened with Kavanah. He was an honest person. He set time to learn daily. He went up to Shamayim. They say, oh, Jew, you lived a great life. Here, we're giving you a nice spot in Galadin. Two Kagaran, three floors, and a very nice house. He said, thank you very much. Next year, Rosh Hashanah, they knock on his door. So, well, I, I thought I'm in retirement. He said, no, 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 no. You're getting a promotion. So where am I going? Oh, where are you going? Now you're moving to San Diego. Now you're moving somewhere really nice. And now you're going to have a corner property, and you're going to have a Tesla, and you're going to have a fully loaded vehicle with landscaping in front of your house, with a pond and a water face. So what did I do? I've been here in Ghanaian the whole time. What did I do? So you don't understand. You had two sons. And these two guys, because of your influence, they're davening with Kavana and they're doing mitzvahs. So you get a promotion. You're getting an elevation. We're moving you out of this regular house and you're moving to a, a mansion. So, okay, thank you very much. Pleasure. A few years later, they knock on the door. Where, where am I going now? Now you're going to the Hamptons. You're going to a 50-acre property. So what did I do? I haven't done anything in 50 years. Now, but now you have grandchildren and they're God-fearing, and you have a granddaughter, she's careful in the laws of modesty, and they're learning Torah, and they're establishing Jewish families, and it's all because of your influence. So this tzaddik is Yelchu Mechayel Elchayel. Every year, annually, he's getting a promotion, he's constantly moving up, even though his official record had ended upon his demise. But then there's another guy. He wasn't such a tzaddik. He came for like, you know, part of davening. And he wasn't that interested in it. And he did a couple of mitzvahs, but he racked up a nice little bundle of misdeeds. So he goes up to heaven, and they say, you know, this ain't going to be good. So he goes through his Cleansing, we'll call it. And they said, okay, what's my reward? Your reward? Uh, we're giving you a one-bedroom apartment in the slums of Harlem. So that's it? Yeah, well, you know, one time he said, I'm in Yishmei Rabbah, and he went to a couple shiurim, so at least we're going to give you a place to live. That's in year one. A few years later, well, what's that? Well, what's that? You're being evicted. Why am I being evicted? Because now, your children followed in your ways. And they're continuing your path. They saw you went to part of davening. You spent part of davening in your bed. Part of davening in the shul. They preferred the bed part, so they spend the whole davening in the bed. And it's because of your influence. 
So forget your one-bedroom apartment in Harlem. We're taking you out and going to a park bench in Central Park. And then a few Rosh Hashanahs later, they say, sorry, pal, this bench is occupied. We're taking you to the floor of the subway station. That's your new location. Says the told us Yeshua, because a person's actions reverberate beyond their lifetime. And then Yeshua, hello, adds, in a footnote, that he saw in a very obscure safe that's called Emunas Tachamim by Rabbi Aviad Sar Shalom, who lived in the year 1729, he was a contemporary of the Ramchal, who has an amazing observation, he quotes from Moshe Zakuto, who explains as a Pasuk in Yermia. The Pasuk says, Godol ho'itzah, v'rav ho'aliliyah, asher e'necho pekucho itzakol darchi b'nei Adam. God's manner of judgment is inestimable. Because for God to judge any individual, He has to scan the actions of all mankind. Ask for Yeshua Heller, why would God have to scan all of mankind's actions to judge one person? This is very simple. Because the person's actions reverberate beyond themselves. They affect the person sitting next to you in shul. They affect your children. They affect your siblings. They affect your parents. They affect your community. They infect the entire world. So for God to issue judgment to one individual, He has to judge and scrutinize the entire world to see how far the actions have reverberated. And then Rabbi Aviyat Sarshalom says an incredible observation. He says, we know the wicked King Menashe ultimately did Teshuvah, and it's recorded in Sefer Devei Hayamim. And yet, if you look in Sefer Melachim, the tshuva is not mentioned. You ever wonder about that? I know it's troubling you. I know more than the heat. You are bothered. Why in Sefer Malachim does the Navi not record the tshuva of Menashe only in Sefer Devei Hayamim? Says Rabbi Aviyad Sar Shalom, you know why? Because in Sefer Malachim, the first base Hamikdash was standing. And Menashe introduced Abba Dezara into Eretz Yisrael. And even though he did tshuva, but the rest of the Jewish people were still worshipping idols. And therefore his repentance was rejected because the influence of his act was still being felt and was still reverberating. So therefore his tshuva was not reckoned. But then in Divrei Hayamim, that was recorded by Ezra after the first base of Mikdash, when all the idolaters were wiped out. And then and only then, when the reverberation of Menashe's action ceased, only then God could accept his tshuva. Says the Gemara Rabbi Elezer, when he would get to the following Pasuk, he would cry. Do you remember that when Shaul went out to war against the Philistines, he was extremely nervous. He didn't know, is he going to be successful? Is he not going to be successful? And the Urim Vatumim wasn't answering him. And Shaul felt that his last resort is he has to wake up Shmuel Hanovi from the dead. Now, just a little important factoid over here. Are you allowed to wake people up from the dead? No, you're not allowed to do that. Please do not do that. Never do that. Avoid doing that. Don't do necromancy. Don't divine. 
just pointing that out. You're halachically not allowed to wake up. Even if they have good information that you think you could get from them, don't do it. It's prohibition in the Torah. But Shmuel felt he, he has no alternative. Uh, Shaul felt he had no alternative. He woke Shmuel up from the dead. And the Gemara says, Shmuel got so scared. Shmuel was so frightened. Shmuel said, Lama hergaztani Why'd you wake me up? Says the Gemara, what was Shmuel afraid of? Shmuel was afraid that he was being summoned to the annual judgment of Rosh Hashanah. So the Meshachachma asks, what do you mean annual judgment of Rosh Hashanah? Shmuel was judged when he passed on. What was he scared of? What could Shmuel possibly have done wrong since his demise? Says the Meshachachma, because the Pasuk says about Shmuel, Loi halchu banav bidrachav. His children didn't follow his ways. And Shmuel was worried that he was being summoned from the dead on Rosh Hashanah, not because of his actions, but because his lifetime continued to reverberate well beyond his actual lifespan. Says Rabbi Shua Heller, Adam Masav Poyel Ad Soif Kal You know, my grandfather I mentioned earlier who grew up in the Bronx, and the assimilation rate in the 30s was rampant. So how did he stay true? He had a grandfather who was a very spirited Jew. And he would come every Friday night. And his name was Meshulam Faish. And Meshulam Faish would sing Zmirai's Friday night, Kari Bain, with such intensity, with such emotion, with such fervor that the roof shook. And those Zmirais entered my grandfather's soul and gave him the fortitude to remain a Torah Jew. Can you just imagine? On Rosh Hashanah, they come to my great, great grandfather. And they say, Mishol and Faish, we're giving you a promotion this year. So what did I do? I didn't do it. I've been, I've been here the whole time. What did I do? No, you didn't. it's not anything you did now. Remember when you sang Kari Bain 107 years ago? Well, your great-great-grandson, Gladstein, he has a kid in Cedarhurst who's learning a Mishnah on Yeshiva Darchei Taira. That's because of you, because you sang Kari Bain. So that goes to your credit. So you're getting a promotion. And if I have a little bit of your Shamayim, because I had this chus that I would go to my grandfather every Arab Yom Kippur. And he would give me a bracha and he would cry bitter tears that I should have your Shamayim and Ava Satayra. And I'm sure that whatever small zechusim that come from him is a great aliyah to his neshama. Says Rabbi Shua Heller, for this a person's heart should tremble. When you contemplate, every act that was ever performed, will outlive you. The way you get up in the morning, the way you conduct yourself in shul, the way you conduct yourself at work, 
that will live on beyond your lifetime. If they were holy, then they will produce holy repercussions forever and ever. But says Rabbi Shua Heller, if they weren't holy, and you had an impact negatively on somebody else, are you going to want to travel the world and identify every person who has been associated and affected by your actions and say, don't follow what I did, ignore my lifetime. That ain't going to be an easy task. Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment not only for the living, it's a day of judgment for the lifetimes of people who lived even thousands of years ago. Says Rabbi Shua Heller, what you do makes a difference. What you do today makes a difference. What you'll do tomorrow makes a difference. Life counts. Life's not a joke. Life is important. So what will you do for the future of the Jewish people? Start with your children. Start with your family. Start with the people sitting next to you in shul. Because your actions reverberate beyond your lifetime. And what you say, and what you do, and how you act, and the decisions that you make, will make a difference forever and ever. Aksiva Chasimataiva. Thank you so much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.